Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbell. In 2014, the world took notice as a new threat surged in the Middle East. A group we all came to know by the acronym ISIS started a campaign to establish a caliphate in Iraq and Syria. They advanced rapidly thanks to a brutal campaign that left thousands dead. And we're talking about a lot of innocent civilian casualties, and U.S. leaders knew they had to act. This launched Operation Inherent Resolve. Today, we're going to learn more about that campaign. It was largely an air war in support of indigenous ground forces. There are several key lessons learned from this experience that we need to apply as we look into the future. Okay, so joining me today for our discussion is Lieutenant General Retired David Eptula, the Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. And sir, always great to have you here. Yeah, it's uh, good to be on Slick. Thank you. All right. And we also have the author of a new book, The U.S. War Against ISIS, How America and Its Allies Defeated the Caliphate, Dr. Aaron Stein. And for his day job, Aaron is the director of research at Foreign Policy Research Institute. So first off, uh, Aaron, uh, congratulations on the new book. And second, welcome to the Aerospace Advantage. Well, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm a longtime listener, so it'll be uh, nice to listen to myself on on your own podcast. Well, awesome, Aaron. Thank you so much. And, you know, Aaron, let's just go ahead and dive into uh, some of the unique uh, aspects of the fighting that centered around the air and space components of the conflict. But first, I got to ask, what inspired you to write the book? Well, you know, I was following this conflict as uh, a member of the think tank community, and I felt like the entire conflict was being told through the eyes of the partners that were being fought on the ground and that sort of U.S. policy was being judged by material or the lack thereof that was being given to these partners, and that the actual sort of American side of the story from the the men and women on the ground to the men and women flying above, their stories weren't getting told. And as as an outcome of that, we weren't really understanding what was happening in the day-to-day war. And so I decided to try and figure that out myself. And the book is the product of a bunch of interviews uh, that came about uh, from that. Awesome. Yeah, really looking forward to uh, to diving into that. And, uh, you know, it's really timely and really important piece of history because uh, this time of history has been overcome by the events with COVID and the Russian war with Ukraine. But there's really some important parallels that we can draw, uh, obviously, between Ukraine and Syria. So let's dive into the war itself. Uh, General Deptula, can you set the scene for the audience? Uh, you know, what was going on in the world? And maybe more importantly, uh, what was going on with the U.S. military? And what were they doing at this time? And and how did it shape our approach to the war against ISIS? Uh, well, that's a tall order, Slick, but let me take a crack at it. Um, going back to 2014, uh, the U.S. was out of Iraq, but still involved in counterinsurgency operations in Afghanistan. Now, I'll leave the rise of the Islamic State to Aaron, um, as I want to focus on the military perspective. Uh, not too long after the initiation of U.S. combat operations, uh, against the Islamic State, uh, which started on August 8, 2014, it became evident that U.S. participation in Operation Restore Stability was really void of a strategy uh, that was based on uh, any kind of robust uh, joint examination of ends, ways, and means. Rather, the operation that evolved into Operation Inherent Resolve took shape as a digression of the counterinsurgency approaches that central command leadership had spent the prior decade and a half executing in Afghanistan and Iraq. So the strategy that emerged, and I use the term strategy loosely, 
was one where assisting Iraq in the rebuilding of its army in order to eject the Islamic State forces was the first priority. Then only after that objective was accomplished was the focus shifted to the secondary importance of terminating the Islamic State's ability to function as a proto-state. Well, what I would tell you is the Islamic State was not an insurgency. It was a self-declared sovereign government. The United States military leadership fought the Islamic State in the venue of the last war, and they didn't recognize that a different strategy, better tailored to the strategic conditions posed by the Islamic State, could have more rapidly accomplished critical U.S. security objectives. I would tell you that the Islamic State could have been decomposed through a comprehensive, swift, and robust air campaign designed to, one, terminate its expansion, two, paralyze and isolate its command and control capability, three, undermine its ability to control the territory it occupied, and four, eliminate its ability to export terror. But to do those things, air power would have had to have been viewed as the supported force, not simply as an enhancement to ground forces. It also needed to be applied like a thunderstorm, not the gradual drizzle that really characterized Operation Inherent Resolve Air Operations. So the strategic problem posed by the Islamic State was much different than that in Afghanistan. The similarity of the minimal application of air power, along with the excessive micromanagement by the Central Command bureaucracy, was a symptom of not recognizing that this was a different strategic problem. After all, the Islamic State uh, wasn't simply a collection of terrorists. The group held territory and managed an inventory of heavy military and civilian equipment. There's a reason they called themselves the Islamic State. So instead of worrying about individual targets, CENTCOM needed to run a wider, more free-ranging air war where more targets were hit more quickly. So I could go on forever, but let me stop there and, and kind of, you know, I've telegraphed my conclusions up front, but that's a, in essence a, a summary of, I think, where we were and, and how uh, the operation was run. Yes, sir. And I really do appreciate that, uh, especially the uh, self-declared states. Um, but, sir, you know, we also understand that there was uh, complex relationships involved in prosecuting the war against ISIS. So can you speak to us about uh, these command relationships and how they affected uh, our approach to the fight? And obviously, Aaron, I'd like you to uh, hop in here on this one as well. Well, let me let me jump in and uh, continue. I mean, a, a part of the command relationships is one that I will talk about uh, a little bit later on, too, but I think in setting the state, it's important to remember that in September of 2014, the president of the United States admitted we don't have a strategy yet for dealing with the rise of the Islamic State. Then, uh, many months later, uh, in June of 2015, he provided an update stating, quote, when a finalized plan is presented to me by the Pentagon, then I will share it with the American people. We don't yet have a complete strategy, unquote. So it appears that in addition to the president's own admission of not yet having a comprehensive strategy uh, to combat the Islamic State at this time, 
what military operations he directed were encumbered by extreme self-imposed targeting restrictions in an attempt to, to conduct what only can be described as immaculate warfare or warfare without collateral damage or unintentional civilian casualties. Now, adhering to the zero civilian casualty goal backfired in ways that those who directed it certainly didn't intend, or at least I don't think so. Uh, The concern for avoiding secondary effects, however, inhibited the nation's ability to secure the ultimate objective of defeating the Islamic State. I am and was in firm agreement that we want to minimize civilian casualties. No one wants to kill civilians, except in this case, for the Islamic State. And that brought into question the logic of a policy that restricts the use of air power to avoid the possibility of collateral damage while allowing the certainty of the Islamic State's crimes against humanity. So while unintended casualties of war are regrettable, those associated with airstrikes pale in comparison to the savage acts of the Islamic State. Uh, Now, I, I, I tried to influence the president at the time in an editorial in the Washington Post to direct his airmen to build a strategy that focused on dismantling the Islamic State, vice building these lily pads that were a term of the day in Iraq, floating on the hope that somehow a few thousand advisors over a couple of months would do what hundreds of thousands of advisors hadn't accomplished in a period of eight years in Iraq. Air power could work to bring down the Islamic State. We should not have delayed that objective as we waited in vain for the Iraqis to somehow unify and garner a unified national motivation to completely address this situation. Bottom line is America's enemies were exploiting our humanity to impose their terror. It was time to change strategy, but they didn't. And as a result of the excessive caution of force employment, During Inherent Resolve, that in turn sparked a crisis of confidence that's invited further violence emboldening others to take action not aligned with U.S. interests. The Russian intervention in Syria is an obvious example. And then there were the attacks in Paris, Brussels, Orlando, Istanbul, and so on that were results of the spread of the influence of the Islamic State. And quite frankly, they were the manifestation of a timid coalition strategy. So you ask about command relationships, but it all starts at the top with strategy. Uh, and that's my response for you. I definitely appreciate that, sir. Uh, Aaron, please hop in here. Yeah, you know, so the book really focuses, there is a, a piece of it on the early campaign on the start of it in Iraq, but it quickly moves over the border as it tells the story of U.S. forces Uh, and U.S. airmen in Syria itself. And you asked about those complex relationships. And those complex relationships really boiled down to, as we called it, by, with, and through, advise, and assist a company. You know, whatever acronym you choose, it was the minimal use of uh, special operations forces on the ground to assist, um, sort of to direct the fight, to assist with partner ground forces, and to enable the application of air power. And the challenge that we always had was that once we found a capable ground force, that ground force was a Syrian Kurdish group. Um, I can go into the differences between all these Kurdish groups, but it quickly devolves into alphabet soup. 
you know, but the problem with our ground force is that while they were the most capable, they were the largest, uh, and they were the most geographically convenient. They just happened to be populous in the areas that we wanted to oust ISIS from, in this case in Syria, the Turkish-Syrian border. They also have direct links to what's called the Kurdistan Workers' Party or the PKK, which is a, uh, a U.S., Turkish, and European Union-designated terror group. And so one of the reasons uh, that General Teptula rightly pointed out, which was the restricted rules of engagement on the application of the use of force, there was also the political challenges, on the other hand, which was working with the partner force that the U.S. ally on the border with the conflict really didn't like to the point where they are still in uh, major combat operations themselves in northern Iraq and uh, in parts of Syria against, which began um, in 2016. And so it was really managing all these complex relationships. And when you layer in on top of that, the, uh, the Russian intervention itself, you had this sort of very combustible battlefield that was emerging that U.S. forces had to navigate, navigated quite well, I should say, but it added layers of complexity to the application of air power and the fight itself. Well, let's talk about that uh, that fight itself and, and dive into the campaign. Uh, you know, at a very wave top level, how would you describe the strategy that the U.S. and uh, its partners used to fight ISIS in both uh, Iraq and in Syria? Well, the strategic approach that was executed during Inherent Resolve was exactly backwards from what it should have been. So here's my summary. As a result, Operation Inherent Resolve, as executed, number one, ceded the gift of time to the Islamic State, allowing them over four years to spread their ideology and expand it to over 30 countries. Two, it did not capitalize on or fully exploit the strategic potential of air power, in part, because the officers in the air component did not advocate for that alternative. Three, Operation Inherent Resolve was inherently not joint. While the vast majority of U.S. combat operations were all conducted by the air component, all of the Joint Task Force commanders of Operation Inherent Resolve were all Army Corps commanders. And four, the operation resulted in many more civilian casualties than a more rapidly executed air-centric strategy would have involved. I agree with all of that. Um, boiled down to its simplest, I think when the Obama administration begrudgingly got the call to go back into Iraq, their ultimate strategy was guided by keeping the amount of deployed U.S. forces, particularly on the ground, as small as possible. And so the strategy evolved from a political decision, which was to try and keep large number of U.S. combat forces out. And so it became, how can we sort of enable ground forces in the Iraqis? Uh, in the Iraqi case, it was far more straightforward. Even though the country was largely falling apart, there still was a central government that you could graft onto. There was the remnants of an Iraqi military, while ineffectual at the early parts of the, uh, of the campaign. Nevertheless, there was a military. And in Syria, this was passed off, you know, sort of to elements of U.S. Special Operations Forces who were basically told, go find somebody, right? And we found somebody as a result of circumstance. Uh, if you remember the early days of the conflict, there was concern about the uh, Islamic State uh, 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 overseeing a genocide uh, with the Yazidi population of northern Iraq. And then out of sort of the muck of these different groupings, there was this group, you know, the YPG, the Syrian Kurds, that were instrumental in helping 
U.S. forces uh, and acting on their own, evacuate Yazidis from Iraq into Syria. And so this was the blossoming of the U.S.-Kurdish partnership in Syria itself. There were broader U.S. efforts, which I talk about in the book, uh, but not really relevant to air power, um, except that there was broader efforts by U.S. military forces to engage in the training of Arab-majority forces. But if you were to think about the campaign, uh, OIR, as I always like to think of it as three different stovepipes. Iraq, it was the one that was given the most priority. Then there was the ISIS-Syrian-Kurdish front, which is the second stovepipe, which was the secondary priority. And then there was the third stovepipe, which is sort of the middle of Syria along the Turkish-Syrian border. And that was the third stovepipe and the least priority of the three. And then the allocation or tasking of air power to each one of those stovepipes reflected the priorities of the campaign, at least from my own interviews. I wasn't obviously directing the air campaign, but this comes from from interviews with people who were involved in all aspects of this. And so I would, that's how I would classify how the war was fought and the U.S. strategy to enable air power and the partner with local ground forces. Well, that leads me into the next question as I'm listening to both of you. Did the strategy change over time? <laughs> I'm going to say yes and no, actually no and yes. It didn't change until President Trump came into power. And what, what he did was he eliminated some of the egregious self-imposed targeting restrictions. But I, I don't, and, and I'm going to pass this off to Aaron because he, he's just completed this, uh, this magnificent book. Um, I, I don't think there was a significant shift, though, because the conditions had been in place and remember, CENTCOM's running the day-to-day operation, uh, and it's run by Army people. And, and part of my, my problem is they did not take a joint approach. But uh, Aaron, over to you. Well, that's exactly what I teased out from my interviews as well, is that in the early phase, there was significant restrictions on how and where U.S. Uh, air power could be applied. Also, you know, to the extent I could figure this out in terms of where uh, and what U.S. Special Operations Forces could be doing. And as President Trump took over, and this was where the Obama administration was going anyways, but like certainly as he inherited the war, he decided to continue it as is, uh, just as General Deptula said. Um, but they, as I understand it, delegated certain authorities down the chain so that there was less bureaucracy up the chain in terms of how when and where both ground forces and air forces could be used. But the strategy remained the same in terms of how it was executed. Now, you've mentioned the Army commanders, and you know one of the other things I want to ask about is during the initial fighting, it seemed like the United States Navy was taking credit for a lot of the missions that were being flown, but in reality, uh, the United States Air Force was a key player. So can you talk to us a little bit about what was really happening here? Yeah, um, I don't want to get in an Air Force or a Navy fight, but the bottom line is, you know, 95% of the force application in this conflict was from the air. You know, the last 5% being the special operations and ground forces. But of that 95%, about 70% of it was from U.S. Air Forces. That's with a little A and a little F. And I don't have the exact statistics at the time, uh, but, but the preponderance of force came from, and I'm thinking 70% of the effort was from the Air Force. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's some, there some excellent comparisons here, by the way, uh, not to start a rules and missions debate, um, but I, I, I think back to um, some of the first operations against the Islamic State 
uh, and a, they, for 40 days, um, the Navy had sent a couple of F-18s up from their carriers um, a, equipped with uh, two bombs each because of the distance that was involved. Uh, and I did a calculation that one B-1 could have delivered the entire payload that it took the Navy 40 days to accomplish, and it could have done it with one sortie in one day. Uh, that speaks to the range and payload capability of bombers. Now, to, their, to the other point, and speaking on behalf of the Navy, is, I mean, look, they're operating um, from a carrier in the Persian Gulf, so, you know, they've got to be uh, air-refueled multiple times, oh, by the way, by Air Force tankers to get there. Uh, so lots of parts and pieces here. Uh, Aaron, you got any other statistics on this? Well, you know, one of the things is that in the early in the campaign, I'm talking about the sort of the first day, night one, um, or, or, you know, somewhere around there, uh, there were strikes that the U.S. government attributed to the Navy because the Air Force uh, assets that were involved were flying from the Persian Gulf themselves, uh, from the UAE. Um, and that government had not yet wanted to acknowledge its role. And so the Navy... Interesting. You know, really yeah. interesting. I'd not heard that before. Yeah. And so, like, the Navy was used as top cover, you know... That's until, a good role for them. You know, that's yeah. a good, good role. PSYOPs. It's good. I, 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 I'm not going to go there. Um, but in turn, <laughs> that, that's for uh, you all to uh, to debate. Um, but it's it was a weight politically. And so some of the original FA-18 strikes... Well, were conducted, at least according to my interviews, uh, by F-15E drivers until, and this is a, a vignette I tell in the book, is that, you know, the official night one, I should say, um, which then the Emiratis like, both demanded to take a, a, a leading role in, and we let them for a number of uh, ally management reasons, and according to the, the people I interviewed, performed quite well, and so they were in sort of the first package that went into Syria uh, on night one, whereas the rest of the coalition partners, while involved, you know, were sort of either a couple hours or a couple minutes behind um, uh, in terms of, of, of who was delivering strikes. And so I think it ultimately comes down to um, the aircraft carrier as a sovereign piece of U.S. territory. And so we can we can use it in, in a way that both for political and for military applications. And it was uh, in the conflict. Yeah, I appreciate that uh, add-on. And Aaron, one thing I know that uh, you really looked into uh, writing the book was uh, how the rules of engagement affected the war. And U.S. air power was really limited regarding how and when we could execute airstrikes against ISIS, uh, even when the attacks were authorized. And uh, I know there were tight regulations regarding the use of deadly force uh, that may have undermined our ultimate goals. What are your thoughts here? Well, I, I agree with General Deptula. I think it, it came from a good place. You know, I think that the lessons of Iraq and Afghanistan for ground commanders like permeated in terms of counterinsurgency tactics. And I think that really impacted how this war was viewed, both in terms of like how you viewed a partner force, right? It's sort of dogma that we had to attach ourselves to a partner force that was representative of the places in which we're fighting, even though our, our partner force and the most effective was Kurdish and therefore not necessarily most amenable to certain places in Syria, but they were the most effective fighting force. And so there was that friction as well. Uh, but in terms of how the air power was applied, I had many interviews in the book, you know, about um, tight rules of engagement to the point where because of the ubiquitousness of, of sensor feeds is that, you know, 
people in the in the Joint Operations Center, whether it be in Iraq itself and even being back to the Pentagon, were dialing in directly. You know, I, I use dialing in in air quotes. People can't see this to to like, literally authorize targets. Uh, that level of micromanagement, and then when you layer on top of it the coalition aspect. Um, different coalition partners having different rules and then the use of red cards, uh, the red card use, which I, I think listeners will know is, is a pretty standard irritant in coalition air operations. I had one person more on the, on the drone side talk to me about like literally watching Islamic State uh, folks shooting Yazidis in the back of the head, but a red card holder threw up a flag because of the potentiality of, of civilian casualties. And so they just had to watch, for example. And they, they, they lament the fact that they couldn't launch hellfires in this case. And so that's like, even if it wouldn't have defeated the Islamic State, perhaps it could have saved a Yazidi or two in that specific engagement. So, you know, I have talks in there about Australians using cement bombs to try and get kinetic effect without actually blowing anything up. Um, all the way down to, uh, as I said, the reach back and satellite communications into the cockpit. So it certainly played a role throughout the entirety of the conflict. Sure. And one thing I want to uh, ask you about uh, directly was, uh, you know, seeing a lot of carryover from uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, especially with the sensor shooter construct. Uh, can you walk us through any more examples of how this model was brought uh, into, into the battlefield there? One thing that did surprise me from my interviews is that some of the airmen I interviewed, they basically, they told me, this is a direct quote, we grew up in Afghanistan. And so the, the weaponeering involved in destroying targets in Afghanistan uh, was different than the weaponeering involved in destroying buildings in Syria. And so it was relearning, you know, certain weaponeering tasks, you know, blowing up a concrete multi-story apartment building, for example, versus, you know, not to sound pejorative, but like mud thatched roof buildings. And so that was something that came up that I found really interesting. But one of the things that, that really came up in my interviews in the terms of the sensor shooter construct was both battle force track in the beginning of this conflict, uh, particularly in Iraq, uh, when the Islamic State took large amounts of U.S. origin weaponry into their arsenals, trying to tell from 30,000 feet, you know, which Humvee is ISIS and which Humvee is CTS in Iraq. Uh, but also learning on the fly, you know, the opening sort of strike, as I understand it, against ISIS came up in the northern Iraq and the, the Iraqi Kurdish region. And it was an F-15E lazing a target for a MQ-9 for a Hellfire strike. And the, uh, one of the people sort of tangentially involved said that isn't something they normally train to, but they just figured it out on the fly. And so like all these different aspects came together in terms of the application of these tactical vignettes of, of the air campaign uh, uh, over Iraq, and in, in the case of the uh, of the of the F-15 and the uh, the MQ-9, and also uh, in Syria as well. Yeah, and, and you did mention. I really want to dive in quickly here about the ability for command and control to operate from incredibly long distance away from the battle space. And Dr. Stein, you you know you wrote about the Joint Terminal Attack Controllers or JTACs operating out of Fort Bragg uh, and being able to give the green light on attacks, but it obviously required. Uh, complex systems to be able to pull it off. And as I understand it, a lot of these systems were space-based. So can you talk to us a little bit about the role of space in this conflict? And are there lessons learned on how we should apply space to future conflicts? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure how widely that's known. Um, I think I got in a little trouble. Oh, I don't carry clearance or anything like that. But, you know, people, did, I don't know if they really wanted that out there. But one of the things I learned in like the, the course of my interviews is that some of the, the controllers, you know, weren't necessarily 
in the CENTCOM uh, area of operations. They were actually back in North Carolina. And it was the, it's the availability of space. It's the interconnectedness that satellite communications affords us that both has a positive aspect, right? Uh, in the case of having controllers that don't necessarily have to be in-country or, or country-adjacent, let's put it that way. Uh, and then the negative aspect of it is that satellite communication reachback, you know, where you know, if a JTAC in North Carolina can watch it, a, a big wig in the Pentagon can watch it too. And sometimes they think that they have a better idea of the sort of ebb and flow of conflict than does the airman who's like either, you know, flying around or is at least in closer proximity. But space is absolutely critical. You know, it's, it makes everything go in my opinion. Um, and like these, these vignettes represent how important it is to both the use of air power and then like the use of sensors that enable um, the precise use of air power for things like targeting cycles and stuff like that, that I think were, while slow in Syria, are, are nevertheless uh, a model that could easily be, that could be sped up, I should say, for a more effective use of air power in future conflicts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, it, it, it's always scary to me to think about uh, this mindset in general, Dr. I know that you have uh, thoughts about this where, you know, the United States Air Force can't drop a bomb unless there is a JTAC on the ground to approve that uh, that strike. I mean, we do strategic attack uh, by training, especially, you know, in the bomber force. But, uh, you know, we ha we do have this tyranny of technology, as you mentioned, Aaron. But uh, General Dr. I want you to hop in here with your thoughts on, you know, just because we have C2 that can reach into the cockpit, it doesn't always mean we should use it, correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you, uh, you raised some excellent, and Aaron, too, raised some excellent issues. I mean, as Aaron was talking, I'm thinking back, you know, I had the good fortune of being involved in uh, joint contingency operations uh, for over 30 years, and uh, the juxtaposition of being the planner during Desert Storm, and then 10 years later as director of the Air Operations Center for the opening stages of Iraqi freedom, what I would share with you is, it is uh, modern telecommunications, uh, and, and Aaron hit it right on the spot. You know, in Desert Storm, nobody graded my homework. I was empowered to put together an attack plan. It wasn't done by a committee. Now, break, break. Ten years later, in the opening phases of Enduring Freedom, and for those of you who've forgotten what Enduring Freedom is, that was America's response to the 9-11 attacks, our attacks against al-Qaeda and uh, Taliban in Afghanistan. We could not drop a bomb in Afghanistan without the four-star commanding general of Central Command approving it. Okay, that micromanagement was enabled by modern telecommunications. At the same time, the good aspect of that, and Aaron kind of alluded to this, was the fact that we can operate uh, you know, uh, our whole MQ-1, MQ-9, RPA, drone, UAV, whatever you want to call it, force is now operated from the continental United States. Huge advantages. Uh, but uh, the commanders have to maintain the discipline to stay at their respective command levels. So you shouldn't have four-star generals getting involved in tactical-level targeting decisions. They provide the guidance, and then the forces execute. Now, what happens, and, and what I want to do is I, I want to share with you a communication that I received during the conflict from one of the pilots actually flying there. Quote, we're killing off as many ISIS as we can, mostly in ones and twos, working with the hand we're dealt. I've never been more convinced 
in my entire career that we're facing an enemy that needs to be eradicated. With that being said, I've never been more frustrated in my career. After 13 years of the mind-numbing, low-intensity conflict in Afghanistan, I've never seen the knife more dull. All the hard lessons learned in Vietnam and fixed during the first Gulf War, Desert Storm, have been unlearned again. The level of centralized execution, bureaucracy, and politics is staggering. I basically don't have any decision-making authority in my cockpit. It sucks. In most cases, unless a general officer can look at a video picture from a UAV over a satellite link, I cannot get authority to engage. I've spent many hours staring through a targeting pod screen in my own cockpit, watching Islamic State heads perpetrate their acts until my eyes bleed without being able to do anything about it. The institutional fear of making a mistake that has crept into the central mindset of the military leadership is endemic. We have not taken the fight to these guys. We haven't targeted their centers of gravity in Raqqa. All the roads between Syria and Iraq are still intact with trucks flowing freely. The other night I watched a couple hundred small tanker trucks lined up at an oil field in ISIS-held northeast Syria filling up with oil, traded on the black market, all go unfettered. It's not uncommon to wait several hours overhead a suspected target for somebody to make a decision to engage or not. It feels like we are simply using the constructs built up in Afghanistan, which is a very limited fight, in the same way here against ISIS, which is a much more sophisticated and numerally greater foe. It's embarrassing, unquote. That, that says a lot and summarizes a lot of what Aaron and I have already said. Yeah, absolutely, sir. And, uh, and over a beer, I'll tell you a couple of stories where, where that happened to me personally as well. But, uh, sir, I, you know, I do want to, uh, you know, dive into something that you had said earlier, you know, essentially that this was largely an air war, but it was run by the ground commanders at the top. Uh, so can you run us through the history and the impact that this had uh, at the strategic level and the strategic oversight uh, and the guidance of the operations? Yeah, sure, Slick. Um, although this was essentially an air-only war, as I mentioned earlier, at least with respect to the American combat involvement with it, until its final successful joint air-land conclusion uh, with indigenous anti-ISIS ground forces being supported by uh, soft teams and U.S. air power, uh, the campaign's appointed overall joint task force commander um, was a U.S. Army Corps commander through six successive iterations. Now, let me offer you this. The U.S. Army's leadership, its central command, would not put an Army division commander in charge of a Navy carrier battle group, yet it had no problem with putting an Armored Corps commander in charge of an air campaign. And the predictable result was an inappropriate ground-centric emphasis toward countering the Islamic State that treated air power as simply an aerial artillery element. Had Central Command instead defined the enemy more correctly and pursued a more air-dominant campaign approach, at least at the outset, it quite likely would not have given the Islamic State the gift of time, over four years to perpetuate its ideology of evil and spread it around the world. 
the reality, and this is, this is something that hurts, but I'm being candidly honest here, but the reality for the Air Force ever since the end of the major con- combat operation in Iraqi freedom in 2003 has been a lack of advocacy, articulation, and engagement on behalf of air power uh, by airmen who have fallen into a passive mode as a result of what can only be called joint political correctness. So I'm not laying this all on CENTCOM, so don't misunderstand me. But we need to have advocates inside the Air Force uh, in the air component to be able to talk to the combatant commanders and the leadership and offer them alternatives. So I'm not just blaming the Army. They don't know any better. They don't know what they don't know. So airmen have to step up and say, hey, boss, here's an option. This is something you ought to con- consider. Uh, so I, I hope that helps. Um, it, 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 there's a lot to learn um, from this operation and what happened in what not to do. Yeah, sir, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, have, having uh, been, been wearing a blue suit during that time, I think you're, you're absolutely right where you just uh, forced to, to think, well, hey, I'm being joint, right? So that means everybody can uh, can do any job and, and I can be led by anybody. So, well, that'll be a, a good topic for another podcast, I'm sure. But uh, Aaron, one thing I wanted to note is that you made it very clear uh, in your book that policy or the lack of clear policy and realistic uh, set of in-state goals had real-world effects on the end of the U.S. war against ISIS. So uh, obviously there's multiple nations all trying to carve out their own interests in the region, uh, which obviously complicates things. But what were the key takeaways uh, that we should take from this? Well, I do think that the execution of air power was framed and used through a counterinsurgent lens. And I think the analysis of the conflict, and again, this was one of the reasons I wanted to write the book, also came from the same place. You know, so all of our frames of reference, you know, for basically everybody who's a an adult, right, or a, a you know somebody in my age demographic, just for the listeners, I'm 38. We grew up with the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, and that's the entirety of how we view conflict. And so it really permeated in how we analyze this conflict. You know, and for those of us who study air power, it, it really is kind of like it's kind of an outlier, right? And a lot of it's enabled by technology, but also some of it is, you know, comes out of you know, basically the counterinsurgency field manual. And so it's moving beyond that. Um, and I, I agree with General Deptula. It, it's one of an interview I said right at the beginning of, of, of my interview process was, we should have been in charge. And this is, I'm speaking on behalf of a, of a U.S. Air Force pilot. You know, that was a mistake. And that's a lesson learned as we move forward. And so if you look at the goals of the campaign, Iraq was very clear cut. It was empower the Iraqi central government to take back the country. And that was successful. Syria was never all that clear cut because regime change wasn't an option for, I think, for understandable political and military reasons. Right. And so it was oust the Islamic State from northeastern Syria, which we did. But you have to oust them with small numbers of U.S. ground forces, local partners and restrictive rules on air power. And so it's just going to take a long time. And if we're okay with that, you know, then the next one that will look like this may take a long time. Or, you know, as I hope the book will will help with, it will spur debate about how we can break out of that sort of. 2000s mindset and really learn some tangible lessons so that we can do it better 
next time. Because uh, I, 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 there's always a next time, um, whether it's ISIS, ISIS 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, or something we don't even foresee. Uh, I, I think that we can absorb lessons from where we can get better and apply them into the future. Thank you. Uh, General Deptula, anything to add on that? Yeah, a um, couple things. First, it can't be said enough or too strongly uh, that the performance of our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines in Inherent Resolve was spectacular. They executed successfully every mission assigned, and they accomplished what they were directed to do. Second, the coalition efforts against the Islamic State were successful, and the military leadership is to be commended for that. Now, all that said, I believe we could have achieved better outcomes and were achieved with a different strategy than was initiated by the um, Obama regime, which had two characteristics. One, use a minimum amount of force to indicate that action was actually being taken. And two, um, it put helping Iraq regain their sovereignty first ahead of removing the Islamic State in Syria. So as I said earlier, and I want to reemphasize, if that strategy had been reversed, I think we could have accomplished our critical U.S. national security objectives in four months instead of four years. Uh, in other words, we should have put eliminating the Islamic State's ability to operate as the primary objective uh, versus the secondary one. Um, so um, I, I'll stop there in the interest of time. Um, I, I, could, I could talk about this one for a while, but I, I think in uh, conjunction with uh, Aaron's comments, uh, uh, that kind of sums it up. Great, sir. I appreciate that. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask this uh, for both of you. Looking into the future, uh, with the U.S. Uh, shifting away from counterinsurgencies and smaller wars like Syria and planning for great power competition, uh, so for each of you, what is your top lesson learned from the war against ISIS, and uh, what can we apply to thinking about future conflicts? So we'll get started with you, uh, Aaron, first. Well, one is that even small operations aren't small. If you look at the number of enabling assets that, that had to go into uh, the war against ISIS, it's a large number. Uh, and that large number is a larger fraction of the overall Air Force. And I think at any time in history, uh, I may be wrong there, but I'm going out on a limb because the Air Force has shrunk. And so it's if we're going to do light operations, it's really thinking through how to make them lighter, right? And it, if we are going to have finite assets and we are going to have a return to large peer adversary conflict or competition, we really need to turn the focus to those. You know, it's time to start picking and choosing uh, how we use this, uh, how we use this stuff because it is a vital national asset. And so I would push forward with making things lighter uh, on the light end side and making things more lethal on the high end side. Yeah. Um, Slick, my answer is that a robust, rapid and a comprehensive air campaign could have reduced the slaughter of thousands of innocents at the hands of the Islamic State. And we could have optimized our asymmetric advantage of air power by treating it as the key force, as the centerpiece of strategy, uh, not simply as a supporting element to indigenous ground forces. Um, if we'd taken that approach, we could have negated their effectiveness very, very quickly. Um, and let me give you some uh, backup statistics. The average number of U.S. strike sorties a day over the entire conflict was 17. If you include coalition, it comes up to 22. Now, only nine strike sorties per day in Syria. In Desert Storm, it was over 1,200 strike sorties a day over 43 days. So nine strikes versus 1,200 strikes. 
and the best way to mitigate unintentional civilian casualties, or in the case of the Islamic State, intentional civilian casualties, is to render the enemy ineffective as promptly as possible. Overwhelming and focused attacks to crush the Islamic State, focused on their leadership and key essential systems, not episodic antiseptic bombing, would have also sent a signal that the U.S. has the will, the power, and the resolve to confront other regional threats. Yes, yeah, sir. C- couldn't agree more. And again, you know, my footstopper here is strike, right? Not close air support. So, but, and sir, I want to uh, ask one last one for you. Um, we're seeing a disturbing trend uh, where top political leaders are failing to authorize decisive power. Uh, and I'd argue that this puts our forces at risk, puts more civilians in harm's way uh, through an extended conflict, and obviously allows the enemy the advantage of time and maneuver. So I think we're seeing a similar thing uh, play out in Ukraine, where we're holding back, giving the Ukrainians what uh, would allow them to really push back the Russian forces. And I'll call it this, you know, playing not to lose is way different than playing to win. So what are your thoughts on this, sir? Well, spot on, Slick. I couldn't have said it better, but since you gave me the opportunity to talk one more time, I will. Um, Unfortunately, since Russia invaded Ukraine, Putin's rhetoric has done more to deter action by the United States and NATO to assist Ukraine than the United States and NATO has done to deter Putin. Examples abound. The public debacle of the Pentagon rationalizing away the value of getting MiG-29s and other aircraft to Ukraine early on the reluctance to send MQ-1s and MQ-9s to Ukraine, excusing the Russian MIRVED ICBM test after the U.S. canceled a routine ICBM test of a, of a missile that's, uh, that, that, that was, is over 40 years old, citing the desire to avoid any miscalculation uh, that could lead to escalation. It's time for the United States to reverse this situation by providing the Ukrainians more advanced tools that they need to fight and win. Oh, by the way, it's important to recognize that the president of Ukraine acknowledged air superiority as his number one priority and requirement, and yet we have not supplied him with the aircraft that are required to do this for fear of a Russian reaction. If there was ever an example since World War II of a nation fighting against all odds for the freedoms that our own nation regards as unalienable is the people of Ukraine. We need to support them to the greatest degree possible and reverse Putin's deterrence of U.S. action to provide Ukraine weapons that will make a difference in their defense. Yes, sir. I could not agree more. And, uh, you know, this is one of the longer podcasts that we've had in a while, but, uh, it all has been really, really good. And I just want to say again, Aaron, congratulations uh, on the book. And for our listeners, you can find the link to the book in today's show notes. And really thank you both for being here today. You bet. Let me add my thanks too to Aaron. I look forward to reading your book and uh, well done on uh, making that uh, happen and uh, taking on that endeavor. Well, thank you guys so much for the opportunity to talk about it. And, um, you know, I hope everybody uh, checks out and reads it. And, you know, thanks again for the opportunity. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. 
As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.